Welcome to another episode with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We are so glad to have you guys here back with us again uh, for the first timers. I'm Jay. I'm one of the one half of the dynamic duo who makes this happen. And I have with me my, my co-host here. This is Dr. Cole. Uh, how's everybody doing? Thank you for tuning in. Yes, thank you very much. For all those who keep coming back, we really appreciate you guys and all the support. Uh, we have another good show in store for you guys, and this one is one of our international guests. So, uh, really hope that you guys uh, enjoy this. And but before we go, man, so you know everyone probably know this. Uh, Mike Tyson recently had a fight. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, man, you know I'm just a, a poor resident. I couldn't afford to watch it on pay per view <laughs> and all that stuff. But uh, you checked it out, right, Cody? Oh, I did. Me, myself, and uh, my co-resident went out and, and saw the saw the fight. Saw Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. And then they had a couple of the uh, the cars that came on before that, the Jake Paul versus Nate Robinson, which uh, he got knocked out. If anybody was watching that fight, but uh, Mike Tyson, he he looks good for being his age and like he he is in shape. Like he's cut. You know, he looked good yesterday on the. Uh, on the on the video or on the um, during the match, like at the end of the match, I don't know if you saw the interview afterwards, but there was a interview with Roy and Mike, and Mike was like, "Yeah, let's do it again." And Roy was like, ah, you know, let's just let me ask my family first. And <laughs> I was like, "Man, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> end yeah. up calling it a draw." I could tell just from the lead up, I felt like Mike Tyson was really into it, man. Like he's really been training pretty hard for it, and uh, you know. I really still think he's like he's one of my favorite boxers. You know, he's like always been, in my opinion, one of the best heavyweight champions. Uh, I really hate I didn't get to watch his exhibition match, but yeah. maybe next time. I'm glad he's still doing good and he got himself together. He seemed to be a whole lot better than he used to be as far as, oh, yeah. you know, other things in his life. Right. Yeah. He has a, he has a lot going on. I actually um, he's a he's a he's a smart guy. If you listen to some of his interviews, you know, not to get off on a tangent here, but. Um, yeah, we I'm probably can talk about this for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but, right. uh, yeah, I think he's just doing better for himself. So that's 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 wonderful stuff. But let's let's get to it. Can we let's go ahead and uh, introduce our our guest today? Yeah. So today we are talking about terrible triad injuries. And again, if this is your first time listening, go and check out the YouTube channel at Nailed It Ortho. Uh, we have this whole uh, interview and this whole episode on there, as well as clips from this episode at Nailed It Clips. So just look it up it'll be in the link in the description but again just like uh, jay was saying this is one of our our first actually international um guests uh, i may mispronounce his name here a little bit but we got dr mauricio pandini monteto de barros he is from sao paulo brazil uh he did his uh orthopedic residency and trauma fellowship in the federal university of sao paulo and again, he came today and spoke about terrible triad injuries. I think he did a great job. He was a little nervous beforehand because his English isn't the, isn't the best, but I think he did a good job. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I think he did a wonderful job. Uh, we went through a, a case at the end of it. So, hey, uh, an even more reason to go check us out on YouTube. Uh, and just overall, I think we hit all the high yield topics about uh, the terrible tri- triad of the elbow. So I think... Everyone should be able to get a, a lot from this show, and I hope y'all enjoy it. Tune in to YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to both pages, Nailed It Ortho and Nailed It Clips. Thank you, guys. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. 
everybody to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. And today we have a special guest, an episode I've been looking forward to for a while. We have Dr. Mauricio here. So uh, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Hey guys, good evening. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. It's nice to get the invitation. Yes. And Kind of a challenge for me. It's my first language, Portuguese. Uh, I'll try my best here to be to make a excellent episode. For sure. And just to mention, just so everybody know, Dr. Mauricio is coming to us way from Brazil. So we are really glad that he's able to 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 do this for us. And uh, we're getting out to more international uh, listeners and a more international fan base. So hey, I'm really appreciative of this time. Yeah. Thank you. And you, uh, you post great cases on, on your Instagram page, too. So uh, we, we enjoy learning from you. Thank you, guys. So, you know, we always like to start off asking a couple of questions, just getting to know you a little bit better. And so the first question that we have, you know, some people may not know. Can you just kind of tell us about the, the school system in Brazil and the path that you took to be an orthopedic surgeon? Well, uh, in Brazil, it's kind of different from U.S., I believe, uh, especially the years that take you to graduate. Uh, in Brazil, we have six years of medical school. And after that, we pick up uh, a residency, an orthopedic residency. Uh, there are three years. It's three years of residency at all. Uh, and then after that three years, we choose a fellowship. Most of them is one more year, just uh, spine surgery and tumor uh, that are two years of fellowship. So I believe that the main difference from US or from other countries and other regions, that is faster. We get to the market, we have to graduate and go to jobs and work along younger probably younger than you guys. Yeah, yeah, sound like it, like you say, it'll be a, a little bit faster of a process uh, like that with you only having to go for another additional year or so after medical school, even though it sounds like medical school might be a tad bit longer. Cause I think you said six years for medical school while here it's only four. So I don't know, I guess, depending on what you go into, it could almost be, it's, it's not too much of a difference, um, but, we know you're into trauma as your, you know, your specialty there. And I was just going to ask you, do you guys get a lot of high energy trauma at the institution that you're at? Yeah. In Brazil, we have uh, lots of motorcycle accidents. That's the probably far, by far the most uh, frequency of trauma here and high energy trauma. It's motorcycle energy. Probably it's very different from other regions. Uh, we have, in, especially in São Paulo city, that where I work and live, uh, we have lots of lots of motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah, I know me. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. Go, now go ahead, Jay. I was just gonna say. Yeah, me and uh, me and Wendell, we've been you know to some international trips, and that's something I've I've noticed. Um, Let's see. Yeah, in yeah. South America, 
a lot of people are driving, you know, between, you know, there's motorcycles, but I saw a lot of like uh, what I would consider mopeds or, you know, like these, these smaller motor motorbikes just to kind of get around the city. That seemed to be a more popular mode of transportation in other countries that uh, what I, from what I've seen in, you know, the few places I've been. Yeah, definitely. I've seen, I've seen whole families on uh, motorcycles. Uh, I've seen it um, a lot more when I travel. Uh, yeah, I think that's um, that is uh, that's definitely like that's a point to make. Um, and then you know the third question we have for you. I know we were talking a little bit earlier about one of the cases or, or a tough case that you had. Uh, can you? What is one of the toughest trauma cases that you've had? Well, I do remember uh, some months ago that I operated a pelvic injury ring. Uh, and a very, very fat, huge guy. It was like something, I don't know, we have to, we, in Brazil, we, we say kilograms. In US, you say pounds, yeah? Correct, right, yeah. Right, right. And then you have to see how I say it. The guy probably had 200 kilos. He was very, very huge. And I, I'm not a yeah. tall guy, so I struggle a lot to take a okay reduction, especially in the sacroiliac joint. Yeah, that'd be um, a little bit over 400 pounds here in the U.S. So that's a that's a big that's a big patient. In those cases, can uh, definitely be hard and challenging, and especially you know if you're not huge, big guy, those those can be some hard cases. So what we'd like to do is kind of transition to our case for the day. I know we're talking about terrible triad injuries. So we just have a case that we made up. And so say a 45-year-old male presents to the ED uh, after falling on an outstretched hand from a ladder. And he just has severe elbow pain. The physicians called you because they noticed that he had an elbow dislocation. What are some of the things that we want to be on the lookout for when we talk about getting a history and taking a physical exam? Well, for for uh, elbow dislocation, I believe that you can focus uh, on the how the patient felt. It was a high energy, or low energy felt, sport injury maybe. And after that, go straight to physical exam. Uh, in a dislocation situation, probably you have to be faster with your history and go uh, straight to the physical exam, especially the neurovascular exam. That would be my first goal here. I see what happened and at the same time, feel the distal pulses, exam the sensory neurovascular. I would think that would be the main goal here, the first goal. And after that, we will calmly, if there's nothing wrong with neurovascular exam. You commonly go examining the hands, the wrist, and after that probably go for a x-ray exam to see what happened, to see if there is a fracture, if it's a simple dislocation, probably. And yeah. what is the, uh, oh yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I was just gonna say, because, uh, he was, you already mentioned it, but what, what is the difference between a simple elbow 
elbow dislocation and a you know a complex elbow dislocation? Uh, the definition of simple elbow dislocation is a loss of joint congruency without a fracture, and thereby, when you get to reduce the joint, it has a huge huge chance of being stable and not needing a surgical treatment. Uh, the other kind is a complex dislocation, it's a fracture dislocation. There's a amount of variety of kinds of it, but most of them are more unstable and probably will need a surgical treatment. Okay. And when we are looking at the x-ray, so we, you know, we've, we've seen this patient and we were getting the x-ray. What, which, what x-rays are you getting and what are you looking for on each of them? I think that if you're looking for an elbow dislocation or an elbow fracture, uh, probably go for AP and lateral view. Uh, if you are looking for to see the radio head, with more detail, you could go for with another instance, the green span, the oblique review that highlights the, the radio head, but it's uh, mainly the AP and lateral view. I think that's enough. And the first thing that I would look for or uh, search is the, the congruency and the, 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 if there is a dislocation of the joint, the ulnomeral joint, it would be the first thing that I would look for if there is a dislocation or not dislocated. And then after that, I would rather, I would look for the other injuries, radio head injury, distal humerus, uh, coronary process, epicondyles, avulsions, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that's all important. And one of the films that we typically don't get all the time here that you mentioned, which may be a good film to, to get, and I know our attending says that sometimes, would be that oblique of the radial head to get a better view of the radial head. Because uh, I know, you know routinely most people get AP and laterals uh, of the elbow and, and look for the same things that you just said. So you're looking for the all no humeral congruency. You're looking to see if there's any fractures of the coronoid tip. Uh, you know, make sure the, the radio capitella joint is, is intact and everything lines up there. Um, so, but yeah, I think that the utility of the oblique of the radial head can definitely clue you in and give you more info as to, you know, the nature of the injury and what you may be looking for uh, as far as how you may fix these fractures. Um, Jay, any, anything else you, you thinking? No, I mean, I totally agree. I think, I think the... I'm really just going off the cuff here, but I think the the image that you're you're mentioning, like that oblique of the radial head, I, I think it also might be called a is it called a Greenspan as well? It yeah. may be. Yeah, but I don't know. Just for people who are out there studying, you know, that's 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 one. And you know, anytime you get a even if it's like an isolated radial head fracture, sometimes if you just want to see it a little bit better, it kind of puts it into uh, focus a little bit more into playing. So something to keep in mind. Um, but what about as far as more advanced imaging? Do you normally get CT imaging for these types of uh, injuries? Well, if I'm dealing with a simple dislocation elbow and I 
end up with good images, good AP and good lateral view. And I am certain that there is no fracture uh, and the elbow is reduced and well and congruency. Uh, I don't think that you need a CT scan, but if you are in doubt or if you are not able to get good image that it's quite common, the patient is in huge pain and can't position right the, the, the limb. So if you are in doubt or there is a, you can see that there is a fracture, I think that it's advisable to get a CT to study in details what that fracture is and to study if there is one more fracture that you can see in the x-ray or one more injury. Yep. And um, yep, just like you were saying, uh, when, when we were reading up on this and because honestly, I haven't had a, had to deal with this a whole lot. So I don't have a lot of personal experience. But when I was reading on this, it just the literature even says exactly what you were mentioning that, that you don't really have to get a, a CT for this. Uh, you know, a lot of the time there's uh, very characteristic uh, t fracture types associated with this. Uh, but there with the, the technology that's out there today between the 3D recons and things like that there is, you know, some use for to have a, just a better look at the overall fracture and surgical planning. So I am uh, glad that you broke it down in the way that you did. And yeah. uh, before we go too, too, too far on to the, the treatment of these type injuries, I think this is probably a good time to break off into uh, some of the anatomy, which, you know, may actually be some of the highest yield uh, material for this injury. And I was just going to ask if you could just kind of go over some of the, the prevalent or very relevant uh, anatomy that we should know when dealing with these types of injuries. And then touch on like what exactly is a terrible triad injury. I don't know if we've defined it yet, but uh, yeah, just like uh, Jay said, we can get into the anatomy. Yeah, well said. Uh, we didn't. Well, the f f at first, uh, the definition of terrible triad is a three components injury. Uh, the first one is elbow dislocation that represents a ligaments injury. The second one is radial head fracture. Uh, it can be a partial radio partial fracture or a completely fract completely articular fracture. And the last one is a coronoid fracture that can go for this just tip into higher or bigger fragment. Uh, and the elbow is a completely different joint from the others in the, the body that we do in trauma. Uh, that's so much importance of the anatomy here. Uh, when you see an x-ray and you suspect that it was a terrible, it is a terrible triad injury, you can't just look at the bone, you can't look at the fractures. You have to imagine and you have to understand what that fragments uh, represents what uh, they why, why are they displaced like that why that portion are fractured and that is so much uh, to do with anatomy especially the ligaments part of the elbow anatomy that's so special and i love that joint because of that you can't treat just the x-ray you can you have to treat the joint you have to be prepared to treat the bone, the ligaments, the capsule, the muscles, all at once. 
Well, uh, to, to begin talking about the anatomy, I would say that it would start with the lateral part, the lateral portion, the lateral collateral ligaments that can be divided in four or three portions, the three parts, depends on where you reach. The, one of them is annular ligaments that goes around all around the radial head. Uh, the other one is the radial collateral ligaments. That's not so important here. But the main one is the lateral lunar collateral ligament, the LUCL. That one is the main ligaments in the lateral portion. Because it's just like a net for the radial head. It holds, it supports the radial heads and avoids the radial heads to keep going posterior and start the dislocation. So if you, I would say in the lateral portion, this one is the most important one, the LUCL. Uh, and going to the medial portion, the medial side, the medial collateral ligaments, uh, there are three, par three parts, the anterior band, the posterior band, and the transverse one. The anterior band is important in extension. Uh, the posterior part, the posterior part is tension in flexion. Uh, so when you think about the instability of the joint, the instability of the elbow, that's more common when you extend the, the joint. Uh, I'll say that the anterior band is more important here. And it goes uh, insert in the in one of the parts of the coronoid fracture, the coronoid piece. Well, uh, beside that, I would say that there is a importance of the anterior capsule, the anterior and posterior capsule, but uh, part of the anterior capsule inserts in the coronoid as well, in the tip of the coronoid. So that's also a important part for the stability of the elbow. Uh, and for the last, we can say about the muscles, the flexor and the extension, tensor, uh, that uh, are attached to the medial and lateral epicondyle that also are important to the stability. So that's the beauty of this, this joint and this injury. You have to imagine and you have to go through all of that in one surgery. Sometimes you have just to, to fix the bone fragments, the bone fracture, uh, but sometimes you have to go all around the, the bone, the ligaments, the capsule, the muscles to get stability. Right. Yeah, that, that, makes, um, that makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, thank you for going through that. And just a recap to those who are listening, we spoke about our, our lateral uh, complex of the elbow uh, that, that originates on the lateral epicondyle. So we, we touched base on the radial collateral ligament, our lateral ulnar collateral ligament, which is very important, then our annular uh, ligament, which, which kind of goes around the, uh, the radial head as well. And then we spoke about the capsule and how important that is. And, and how the capsule uh, inserts a little distal to the coronoid uh, process, or the tip of the coronoid, I'm sorry. And we also spoke about some of the uh, medial-sided uh, structures. Uh, what, I guess the next thing I would kind of like to go into, unless Jay, unless you have something else, 
would be. I mean, I mean yeah, because you know what? I'm so glad that you guys are going through it as well. I mean, this is uh, and a lot of times, I don't know, I feel like a lot of times we have these talks and, you know, we, we talk about the anatomy, but it's not, I don't know, a lot of times that's not the meat of it, but I actually feel like this time there's quite a bit of what quote unquote meat <laughs> involved in the, the anatomy uh, when dealing with these, these fractures. Cause just like uh, we, we mentioned before, like when you're fixing it, it is pretty much a anatomy lesson. You know, you have to go through and remember why this is important, what kind of stability is being, you know, restored when you put the lateral uh, collateral ligament back in place and things like that. Or, um, so really glad that we're spending a little extra time on it. I know just to kind of thinking back some of the questions and things that I've seen, they like to, I think it's important to recognize that the LCL, uh, like we said, the origins on the lateral epicondyle, it inserts on the supernatal crest. Uh, it's important to remember that the MCL, uh, it inserts on the subline tubercle, uh, and they they kind of harp sometimes about the the distance from the tip of the coronoid as well. It's like 18.4, depending on 18.4 millimeters dorsal to the tip of the coronoid, depending, you know, what 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 uh, resource you might read, maybe a tad bit different, but somewhere in there. And so the MCL provides. Uh, valgus and posterior medial rot rotatory stability and the radial head actually is the primary restraint to posterior posterior lateral rotatory instability and then secondary valgus stabilizer so yeah i don't know for for people who are listening that's probably like what did you what are you talking about but maybe rewind it and listen back because i actually think it's kind of high yield uh coronary on to coronary fractures because we mentioned that some too there is some stability gain from the coronoid as well. It's known to resist posterior subluxation beyond 30 degrees of flexion, which you probably can picture in your mind if you flex your arm up. You know, the, the coronoid is uh, still kind of hooking on to the, you know, the, the ulnar more joint there. So I, I don't know that you can kind of picture that one, but the other ones I think a little bit more, takes a little bit more uh, time to really catch on. So yeah. just figure we'll highlight that. Yeah, excellent. But yeah, moving on, like I say, guys, anatomy is pretty key in this one. It, it, we're going to get into some more good stuff. Definitely pay attention to the anatomy on these uh, injuries. But moving on, so what, uh, and actually, you know what, we haven't even talked about it. What, how, say this person comes in, they're still dislocated. This is emergency department. How do we get this elbow back in or back reduced? Oh, there are some ways of doing it. Most of them go around the same way or, or close to it. The idea is to ideally under anesthesia make some axial traction with some degrees of flexion of the elbow. Uh, there are some techniques with nine degrees or less of nine degrees. And if you imagine that the elbow gets more unstable with supination. When you are reducing, you try to supinate to make the reduction. Reduction. Uh, I think that it is. It is. I would do. Uh, in Brazil, we are most of the times we do the reduction in the not in the operation room and not under anesthesia. So we do in the hard way. We just. Uh, do some uh, intravenous uh, pain medicaments and try to push the 
with uh, slightly little pain of the patient. That's hard. Yep. Yeah, we do and the same thing. At least here course. at my institution, we do the uh, the exact same thing. You know, trying like, to get that traction. Go ahead. About a, a test, a, especially for a residency, you have to say you all always will do it in a operation room and under anesthesia. That's ideal because the muscles will be relaxed and will be more gentle reduction. Yep. Yeah. Definitely yeah. have to have some level of uh, anesthesia for sure to just kind of keep things relaxed so that you can get this in, in back in. I know uh, even though I'm at a very high level, you know, trauma center, and we see a lot of things. I remember I actually didn't do my first elbow reduction until a little bit, you know, uh, later than most huh? of uh, you got jokes, but uh, <laughs> it was it was much later than most of the other reductions that I've done. Uh, and you know, I was actually kind of nervous because I mean it was my first time, and I'm like, I don't, you know, most of these things we've done a couple dozen, couple hundred times, but uh, you know, I was like, man, I haven't done this before. But uh, it's actually very satisfying, uh, and it is. You know, I haven't I haven't done a whole lot, but they seem to go in with relatively, you know, relatively easy. So. Uh, very satisfying re reduction. Nothing like getting a good old clunk to know you you're doing it right. Yeah, and um, a huge jump from the the bone. Just a huge clunk. Beautiful. Now I think a, a good thing, <laughs> at least that I, that that we do afterwards is after you get it reduced. You know, after you do your traction, uh, your supination, and you and you flex the elbow up, um, is to test their stability afterwards to see you know if they're stable in pronation, supination, or neutral then splint them in their most stable position, but also like take note of that and make sure you put in the note, like, you know, we, we range the elbow afterwards and it, 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 uh, it dislocated um, at, I don't know, 20 degrees of flexion and supination or something, just so the, the next surgeon or whoever is gonna be seeing this person in the clinic, if it's not yourself, kind of knows um, how stable they are. Yeah, but, um, that's important. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think the next thing to do would be to, to move into treatment. And I, I know there are not um, a lot of these that we treat non-operatively, but is there anybody that, that you would treat with a terrible triad injury non-operatively? And if there are, what is your non-operative treatment? Uh, as I said, the, the non-operative treatment, it's an exception. It's not common to do in, in terrible triad injuries. You would need uh, a tip of the coronoid fragments, a marginal fragments, a fracture of the radial head, a stable and congruency of the joint. And beside that, you would you you had not to be you have to ha have full pronation and supination. Um, for terrible triads, I have to confess that it's not common. I tried once, one guy came to me and it looked like it was stable. One week after he came back with the elbow dislocated. So, <laughs> oh no. Yeah, so you have to, to see the, the patient uh, just a few days after, if you are going to bet on that treatment, uh, get close by. Because yeah. you, you, you will really have to explain that maybe you will have to change the treatment. Uh, but if you do have a stable joint, even with a terrible triad, and you are 
willing to choose the non-operative management? I would say that two or three weeks at most with a cast would be enough because you are betting that it's, it, it is a stable joint. If it's not stable joint, you're, you're supposed not to think about non-operative management. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So perfect sense. Yep. Try to get them back moving and try not to get them too stiff because that'll be the next the next issue if they're if they're immobilized for too long. Yeah, and I so, think an important thing you said was that also was that you have them come back to your clinic. You know, you, you wanna if you test their range of motion, they have good supination, pronation, some good range of motion, and they're on x-rays, they have ulnar humeral congruency and their joint is reduced. And it could stay that way, then that'd be somebody you might be able to treat non-operatively. And, and, and with that non-operative treatment, you don't leave them immobilized for too long because that really can lead to elbow stiffness. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's a, a great thing that you that you touched on that and that you mentioned that. And uh, sorry, Janet, sorry to cut you off, but go ahead, whatever, whatever you're saying. No, nothing. Uh, that that's pretty much sums up. I think non-operative management is not going to be too high yield. You're not going to do it too often, probably in you know, clinical practice, but just good to have in your back pocket. Uh, so moving on to um, operative management of these fractures, what type of approach do you usually take for, for these injuries? Well, uh, for terrible triads, it's not all the cases are the same. You have to know that, that some cases you do the, just the first step of the surgery and that will be enough. Some Some cases you have to do two or three steps, two or three uh, points of destabilization. And someone, some cases, you will end up with external fixation because even after all you've done, it will be not enough to add to get a stable joint. So we have uh, some approaches that from different ways will get to the same place. Uh, there's the direct approach, a, a bigger approach, and you raise subcutaneous flaps to achieve the lateral injury, like a cocker uh, space. Uh, and if you need, you can go all the way through the medial in the same incision in different windows. Uh, here in Brazil, I am used to do different approaches um, usually I start with the lateral approach, the cocker approach for most of these injuries. And the first, the, the first, the first step of the surgery it would be to take a look at the radio heads, to work with the radio heads. If I can fix, uh, I have to replace it. Uh, the second step, after that, uh, I can have a small uh, idea that if that joint is almost stable by that or it's completely unstable, unstable. So the next step would be to repair the lateral collateral ligaments, especially the LUCL. Uh, most of the cases, I would say that that is enough. That uh, would be enough to end up with a stable joint. You have to think that the first step of the dislocation is the radio heads going posteriorly, posterolaterally, posterolaterally, 
Uh, and after that, the Una Umero uh, will get dislocated as well. So sometimes when you avoid the first step of the dislocation, uh, sometimes you get to the stable joint at all just by that. Uh, and sometimes after that, if you are not happy and if you're not uh, stable, you get a congruency uh, joint, you probably will have to work up with the medial injuries. If there is a small fragments of the coronage, probably bet on suturing uh, with anchors or transosseous sutures. Uh, if the fragment is bigger, I'll probably bet in the fixing it from posterior to anterior. And in this case, it's advisable to use a guide, like a anterior cruciate guide. So you are sure that you're aiming your screws in the right place. Or in my case, I like to do in uh, anterior to posterior, not posterior to anterior. I like to do a, a, another different, a separate approach in the medial of the flexor muscles, medial of the flexor carpet, in una carpet. Uh, to get straight to the coronoid uh, with this anterior-medial anterior approach, I can see the coronoid and the anterior capsule uh, with a excellent angle of attack. So I have the best, uh, in my opinion, in my hands, the best way to reduce and to work with that is with this uh, anterior-medial approach. Um, Following about that, I think that after you deal with the coronoid, if you get a stable joint, that's it. You end up your surgery. You have to remember to, you have to do what is necessary to do in the elbow. If you do the first step, as I said, and you get a, a, a reduced and stable joint, that's it. But if you don't have a stable joint, you have to move forward, go doing more and get more stable, more re repair. Uh, the next step, I would say that I would bet you, I would say that is a repair of the MCL, the medial collateral ligament, with the anchor transosseous sutures in the medial epicondyle. Uh, and further less, if you really don't get a stable joint, you have to call the, the you are, that you, you, you are not winning the surgery anymore. You probably have to use a external fixation to add the stability you need at less. That's kind of disappointing. You do so much work. In some cases, you have to still end up the surgery with external fixation. Wow. Yeah, I think that was a, a very good overview, and, and you kind of ran through that very well in a, in a systematic way. And I just want to summarize that again for those uh, those who are listening. And so we mentioned, you know, the first thing a lot, you know, if you read about it, a lot of people, you can kind of get through all um, all different points of your injury through your lateral approach. And you do the lateral coker approach, which is between the anconius and the extensor carpi ulnaris. And you say through there, uh, you can look and you can see if the LCL uh, complex is evolved off. 
Um, you can look and you can see if you have any fractures of the radial head. And then you can also try to get through you know, the radial head to see your coronoid, um, to see your coronoid fracture if you could see one. And then you're saying if that's not enough or you can't really reach your coronoid fracture that you may consider doing a medial approach. And I, I know we've, we've read and we've noticed if there's any like basal fractures or you need a plate on the coronoid itself that you can go medially and do an approach through there. And uh, we know there are a couple different, a lot of different options as far as what approach you would take, but you can, you know, you can split the flexor pronators, you can elevate the entire flexor carpi ulnaris, or there's some uh, reports about there of even just detaching the entire pronator uh, mass from the medial epicondyle on the ridge. And, in, and, and then you also uh, touch base on if it's still unstable after you've done your, um, your, your radial head fixation after you've um, repaired your lateral collateral ligament, which, which you said you can do through transosseous sutures, that you may consider going and uh, repairing the MCL and seeing if that helps with your stability. And if that still doesn't work, then consider adding some adjunctive uh, things such as the external fixator. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask about was the approach is, this is something that we've read about and I haven't seen it done uh, that often. Jay, uh, you can speak to see if, you, if you've seen it done before, but have you ever seen the, the direct posterior skin incision where they just kind of raise the medial and lateral flax after uh, Mauricio? No, uh, I've seen it in a lecture, a Colombian guy presenting it, but here, me and my friends, I never seen it. Uh, right. Direct posterior approach when uh, I'm dealing with a Montega variant or Montega-like injury that I'll have to deal with the proximal ulna fracture and the radial head, sometimes to fix the radial head, just sometimes to, uh, to replace the radial head, the Boyd approach. Taxing uh, slightly laterally to get to the radio head, but for terrible trials, I've never seen the direct approach, although I've read it in a lot of places. And you mentioned you, you just mentioned a thing, you know, something important that I wanted to touch on. And how do you decide if you're going to try to? reconstruct the radial head versus doing a radial head replacement. How do you, how do you figure that out? The radial head is uh, a more troublesome bone than it looks like. It's very delicate and normally the, frac the fracture is cumulated. And you get, you go, I'll, I'll say that plan A, it's almost always tries to fix it. But when you have more than two fragments, probably the chances of you fixing it and, and getting a good uh, stable reduction, a stable joint are low. Sometimes the, when you're fixing the, the screws just crack the fragments in two more pieces and you end up with a lot of pieces uh, or some fixation that will not give you the right amount of stability that you need for that joint. That's not uh, when you're 
uh, tell when you're uh, talking about a terrible triad, you have to understand that the radiohead is not just a bone, but it's a huge important part of the joint stabi stability. So I rather say that uh, I'll say that I rather get a replacement to add my stability than get a W fixation that will end up with a questionable uh, stab uh, stable joint. So probably if there is one fragment in the radio head, uh, I will try to fix uh, anyway. Two fragments, uh, I will still try to fix it, but I have to know that sometimes when you see the CT that there's two fragments, maybe when you are doing the surgery there are more and maybe they crack, they break a little bit, or you end up with a chondral fragment that you are not able to fix or to hold it. So it's always advisable to keep in mind that your plan B is replacing it. Uh, sometimes even with partial injury, partial comminuted injury, the remaining fragments are so comminuted that you are not able to fix it. And as I, again, as I said, we have to recognize that the, this is the first step to achieve the stability of the joint. So most of the cases in my hands, I feel that I feel more comfortable replacing it because I know that will give me more stable and more safe uh, reduction for that that step of the surgery. Awesome. Sometimes I end up with a fixation so delicate that I say, oh my God, if this radio goes a little bit too posterior, I lose it all. Okay. Uh, so I, I rather take it off and put a prosthesis, uh, replace it, so I get the stable joint that's most important, more important in this case, in this uh, terrible trial injury. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned it because uh, the textbook answer for, you know, as far as when to replace these is just like you said, if there's three or more fragments, just go ahead and do the uh, radio head replacement and studies show that uh, patients do do better with that. Uh, and Speaking on the um, replacement, another thing that's pretty high yield is just kind of overstuffing of the uh, radio capitella joint. What, uh, I guess, what is your experience on that? And like, how do you check to, to see if, if the, maybe the replacement is too, too large for the joint? Well, I, I believe that the biggest mistake in the elbow when you're talking of replacing the radio head is to think like it's working as another joints like the hip or the elbow that we have to uh, replace with a big prosthesis so we can uh, fill all the space uh, left with uh, of the fracture. Uh, and in the elbow, it's quite different. 
because you don't need a huge process. You don't need to fill all the spaces. Otherwise, you will get, get uh, end up with overstuffing. That is not good. Will be probably jeopardize your results and function. You have to respect uh, the exact uh, length of the processes, uh, just enough to fill what you need and add a little bit of the stability you are looking for. So uh, I don't use the head, the, the fragment that I took off to measure. Uh, you normally I use, I get a smaller one and test it uh, and see in the fluoroscopic image if the processes is the is ending in the same line as the coronoid uh, if the processes is any proximal to the coronoid that's probably wrong that's not uh, something you want to your elbow or to your patient elbow. Uh, my main goal is the same line, uh, one millimeter or two millimeters, distal to it. That is exactly what you need to add the, like it would be a bone stabili stabilization of the lateral joint. And, and that with the ligament repair, probably will be enough to do that. So in other words, don't fill it up with the, your processes. Just uh, get the image in this fire and measure exactly what you need. And if you are in doubt of uh, nine millimeters or 10 millimeters, nine millimeters or 12 millimeters, go with the smaller one. Okay. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about radial uh, head replacements. But I'm just going to mention this and kind of move on to the coronoid uh, for when you are plating the radial head. And this is something good to know just for just general trauma as far as radial head fractures, not only just, you know, some terrible triads. Uh, there's like a safety zone that you're looking for that's non-articular throughout the, the arc of motion of the, of the forearm. And it, that's where you want to put your radial uh, plate at It's pretty much a, 90 to 110 degree arc from the radial styloid to Lister's tubercle when the arm is in neutral rotation and that helps to uh, avoid impingement of the ulna throughout supination pronation. So uh, that's, that's one good to know and definitely high yield as well. And moving on to the coronary fracture, if you still, you know, you're trying to gain your stability and you see that, oh, okay, we, we need to fix this coronary uh, fracture also. Um, because often it has a piece of the anterior capsule in there, you know, if it's large enough most times. So how do you usually go about fixing this as well? Well, you can think about, uh, it's easier to think about if you imagine it works like a posterior malleolus of the ankle. Uh, the smaller ones, most of the case, we don't need to fix it, but we have to understand that they represent a injury or capsule injury, the ligament injury or capsule injury. So we have to get on my, our mind that, that they are there. Maybe we should, we will need to deal with them. The bigger the fragment, the more part of the joint it's in it, exactly like the posterior malleolus. So the bigger fragments you probably 
have to fix it because they will be a important part of the joint and without it they probably end up with unstable joint and going to arthritis post-traumatic arthritis so if if you have the basal fracture the biggest fragment available you you have to fix it in any circumstance even if you get the the joint stable and in the first step in the lateral approach only uh, if you had another uh, way of thinking, the sublime tubercle is another important portion of the coronoid that gives you a virus stability. So if you don't fix it, probably the patient will in long term involve with, uh, evolve with virus instability. Uh, so the bigger the fragment, the probably the higher the needs, you need to fix it. The smaller the fragments, the higher the needs, you won't need to fix it, but you have to remember that they are there. Sometimes lateral uh, uh, replacement of the radiohead and uh, repairing the ligaments just will, won't be enough. And we'll, you have to deal sometimes with the tip of the coronoid to repair and to fix it. Right. Yeah, and I and, and Dr. Mauricio, I think that was great. And you just mentioned about, you know, if you have a fracture of the base of the coronoid, that may be, you know, an indication of fix, uh, fix the coronoid. And I think you you mentioned earlier you like to do your screws from um, from anterior to posterior. And I know I've read, and there have been some uh, some articles or some papers where they always fix the coronoid, even if it's just putting some sutures through the coronoid, uh, even if it's just a small tip, uh, just just because they believe it helps with the uh, joint congruity and that if they had to go back and do a revision that it would be a little bit harder working through all those lateral sided structures and repairs that you did and uh, so I think it was a, a good thing that you mentioned um, sometimes even having to repair that if you are if you still have uh, some some instability uh, so I think we, I think we touched on most of the most of the big points we touched on what to do with the the, the radial head we touched on on points of uh, replacement versus fixing it and you know being wary of overstuffing uh, the the radial head and the radial capitellar joint um, we talked about measuring our congruency on the ulnar humeral joint as well and then if it's mm -hmm. your elbow still unstable that you may actually have to uh, that that may need some fixation immediately uh, Jay is there anything else that you that you think that you uh, want to cover you think you want to go into the case I think you summed it up great. Just a, you know, LCL, bony work. And if we're still unstable, fixed MCL. You'll see that question a thousand times over. So still unstable, now fixed MCL is the last thing to, to kind of, uh, to, to, to fix. And uh, like Dr. Mar What's Mauricio, that? actually I had one more thing. Um, Post-operatively, because I feel like I've seen maybe even some questions on this. Uh, since you know, intraoperatively, you've gotten and you've made sure that they have a, uh, a concentric reduction when you range it, you know, in the operating room. Postoperatively, Dr. Marisa, do you get your pa patients to start ranging their elbow right away, like post-op day one or day zero or, or when they, they feel comfortable with it? Or how do you do that? How do you kind of uh, structure your post-op plan or rehab? Well, let's go back a little bit. Uh, for simple elbow dislocation, uh, 
think that you you can start from day one a range of motion, uh, but it may be advisable to rest the joint to control the pain with one week of cast. Uh, for terrible triads, I have to understand uh, what's the severity of the injury. There is a lot, lot of variety of injuries. There is there that most cases that cases that are more benign, benign, and there are this, those cases that are more severe and more unstable. So I have to know that. And the end of the surgery tell me, tells me a lot. If I get end of the surgery with total stability, even with full extension and full supination, that's my main goal, to get that in the end of any surgery of the elbow. So I get a lateral, perfect lateral view in full extension and full supination and still get full congruency of the unumeral joint and radiocapillar joint. If I achieve that, I will, I normally usually you, uh, do a two weeks of cast immobilization. And after that, I start gain some range of motion. Uh, the extension range of motion would, should be always with forearm in pronation. Uh, you have to remember that pronated you add more stability to the, the most of the injuries, the terrible tri posterolateral injury. Uh, and when you get to pronate your forearm, you add your, you gives more stability to your elbow. So after the cast removal, I would say to start gaining the range of motion, uh, extension always with pronated forearm and I would work up with pronate and supination in with the elbow at nine degrees of flexion. I believe that was it. And hold with without a bearing age of without uh, getting any weight in the, 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 the limb until the sixth week of the surgery after the surgery. All right, and that sums it up. And you know what? This this particular episode, we got a something a little special, and you're gonna have to log into our YouTube, uh, our YouTube channel to to see uh, this case presentation that Dr. Marushi has set up for us. So we actually have a case that you've done recently uh, that we're showing as we're recording this. So uh, for those who want to log into uh, YouTube, check it out. And so can you kind of go through this case? We have pretty much the preoperative images up at this point. Yeah, this case was a 40 years old, years old male. He was a very strong guy uh, with huge forearm. He felt with outstretched hands and came up to the hospital with a elbow dislocation. In the in the dislocation images, we can see that some fragments uh, anterior to the humerus, uh, but also we can say we can see almost intact radio head, uh, and after the reduction, that confirms 
the radiohead is pretty intact there's not uh, huge not very easily seen fracture but in the lateral view after the reduction you can see that some bone fragment huge bone fragments anterior mm -hmm. probably belongs to the coronoid a huge coronoid fracture and yeah, you... unfortunately i couldn't get the ct images for you guys no worries uh, uh, I can tell you that there were two fragments here. There were there was a anterior medial fragment, a huge anterior medial fragment, and there was a a tip of the coronoid as also. So it was not a common injury. This one. Uh, in the end, there was a, a very marginal fracture of the radial head. Very small fragments that didn't. Uh, would not miss it to take it off. But yes. in this case, the, the main the main injury was the dislocation and the coronoid huge fracture. And yeah, it's it is, an avulsion. Pretty clear. Is that an avulsion of the of the LCL there on right on the on the lateral side of the of the elbow? A little fleck of bone. Yeah. See. Yeah. That's avulsion. Yes. Exactly. You, when you talk about the LCL injury, most of the case they they avulsion from the lateral epicondyle. There's a sign, the bold epicondyle, that gets avulsion from the ligaments and the muscle part portion. So yeah, that's the tip of the small fragments of bone that represents the injury as also lateral. So what was your plan to uh, to fix this, you know, given the fact that it had those fragments that you were, that what you were talking about? So how, how did you go about uh, thinking on fixing this? Well, once it was a, a strong guy, a huge guy, who worked with uh, construction, so very strong. So I, I thought at first that I would need to give a, the most of stability that I need, that I could get. I would need in this surgery. So I started working with lateral, the cocker approach. Uh, and I, in this case, I, I need just to do the, the ligament repair and got uh, good stability, but I saw that, that it was not enough because the coronoid fracture was so huge that was not, not giving me the stability needed. And also, as I said before, uh, anterior medial fragments are important because they get they got a huge portion of the the, the joint. So I chose a second approach, anterior medial approach. But this forearm, this guy was so huge, so strong that it gives me a lot of trouble to get it. So I could plate the the anterior medial fragments. And that, but by that point, I end up with a pretty stable joint, and I could not reach the tip of the coronoid. Unfortunately, I tried through the both of the approaches that are done. I could get it, but I could not take it to the right place. Uh, and then, as I already got a stable joint 
just add another anchor in the medial, medial epicondyle so I could repair the MCL. And ending up with a pretty stable joint compatible with this guy that will go back to work and get weight and work with constructions and use that for that arm with heavy stuff. Now, I had a question uh, regarding your exposure of the ulna and the coronoid. When you're getting your room to put that plate on, I, I assume you're, you're elevating some of the capsule you know, off the, the ulna. Is that correct? I, have, I just haven't seen too many of these uh, cases done, or if I have, it was probably when I was a med student. I did not know what was going on. Uh, that's uh, a different approach. That's not usual. But when you, you are doing, you open the flexor uh, muscles and you get the brachial fascia and you open it and you start your dissection from distal to proximal because you're not you don't want to attach the capsule and the ligament part so when you identify your fracture uh, margin your fracture line the distal part of the fraction the coronoid fracture that is almost enough you need to do. So you, you have to understand that if the fracture start there, you have to put your plate or if you reduce uh, very next to, next to it, but without this dissecting it more. So you end up deattaching the capsule and the ligament part. That's right. not advisable. It's, it's strange. Uh, it's always like that once for, when you see it, sometimes you get used to it. So, but you, you won't see the bone in like another place. You won't see the, that beautiful and very well dissected bone. You have to understand that there's ligaments and you fix it on the ligaments, uh, over the ligaments and the capsule. Well, Dr. Mauricio, I think this was a good talk. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about terrible triad injuries and then sharing your case with us as well. Uh, I think, you know, I think the listeners will really enjoy this talk and, and can learn a lot, which I did. And I, I know Jay learned, learned a lot. He probably just saw his first elbow dislocation yesterday. Um, so uh, thank you for coming along and being a guest. And, and now we always ask our guests, you know, is there any way that our followers uh, can can reach out to you, whether it's uh, you know via social media on Instagram or whatever else it may be. I believe that uh, the the most easy way is to reach me is by the Instagram. Uh, I always answer uh, direct messages there. I don't worry about that. Always do. So you guys know my Instagram. I don't know if you want to say it. Yeah, go for it. It's no problem. Yeah, yeah. that's my account. That, that, there's no, I didn't put my name on it. So I don't like that part of the oh. uh, putting my name and, and being like a, that I'm doing merchandising for me. Right. But my, uh, my Instagram profile is trauma, MB orthopedic. MB is for my last name, Monteiro de Barros. Yep, excellent. And this is again trauma underscore MB underscore orthopedic. Yeah. So T R A U M A underscore M B underscore O R T H O 
P-E-D-I-C. Uh, Dr. Mauricio, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be invited for this one. It was a huge challenge for me, as I said. <laughs> uh, to, to keep uh, like uh, an hour speaking English is yeah. not my daily thing. I don't do that much. But I hope to get to help you guys to do a nice episode. And sorry about the English, not as good as I thought it was. No, it was good. It was <laughs> yeah, fine. It was you did great. a great job. <laughs> yeah, I think it was really good.